This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 99 with Scott Smith on Grand Teton fly fishing and sustainability. I always like to start episodes with getting a background on my guests and how they've uh, gotten into fishing in the outdoors. So I'd love to just hear kind of a rundown of how, how you got your start in fly fishing. Well, I am originally from uh, north of Atlanta area, so outside of like Marietta, and I grew up fishing the Chattahoochee River. You know, growing up in the south, I was, you know, bass obviously was um, like all my friends and our dads, we were all really big into bass boats and it's like the 60 miles an hour to the to the spot didn't really suit me. And I was lucky enough, I uh, got to go fish with my dad and my uncles uh, in the mountains. And, you know, you could start wading through a creek. There was just an intimacy to the wading, the wet wading, the rivers in, in North Georgia that kind of, I don't know, it just spoke to me. And at a young age, uh, I can't really remember. I think I was about 11 when I first picked up a fly rod. I think I was looking at like sports afield or something and I'm a lot older than you, mind you. So this was in the eighties. So in, in that time, uh, I, I remember reading about the Bighorn river out, out here in Montana and all these, the Madison, those were, those were the big watersheds to, to dream about. But, uh, you know, North Georgia was a great place to because I had all the warm water species. I had, uh, you know, the the trout streams, and then in, in the eighties, the a lot of Atlanta area 
had not advanced up in that area yet. So um, there was still a lot of uncrowded rivers. Um, but my background, fly fishing, since I was about 11, I pretty much am self-taught. Um, I think by about 18, I started figuring it out. And it was something about it. I don't know. It's, I think it's the cast. It's the presentation. You know, the, the flow of the cast is one thing that I always am drawn to. And uh, I, I think that's where it began. And I've always loved fishing. I still spin fish. And like I was telling you earlier, I ice fish today. I love getting out and, and fishing. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about all kinds of stuff. But the, the thing that is just getting out, I'm, I'm a, a big guy into like get outside, hashtag get outside, because it just feels good. It's healthy. I probably hiked four miles today on the ice total round trip. And, you know, it just feels good. Now I've deserved the beer I have right here. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, um, when you were in Georgia, did you get a chance to go up and fish some of those um, brook trout streams up in the mountains? I did. Uh, you had to go pretty far up into the, uh, you know, in the higher country and those remote uh, streams. I can't say that I was very successful. Um, I, I've caught lots of brook trout in the Georgia area, but I'm pretty sure a lot of those were stock fish at the time. They weren't, I, I don't think I ever caught the little natives up, up high in the drainage. And, uh, I'll have to put that on my bucket list to go back. But, you know, obviously around here, one of the, uh, I do love the idea and the story of the native trout. Mm -hmm. That's, we have a lot of that in this, in the Jackson area. So, uh, the native trout stories are really special, you know, uh, featured uh, this water, this area, and this this region here. What's your native cutthroat subspecies in the Jackson area? It's the Snake River fine spotted cutthroat. I mean, and it, and it is. You're right. A, a subspecies of the uh, it's a subspecies of the Yellowstone cutthroat. Um, in the Jackson Hole area, that that this upper watershed, the upper Snake River watershed, is is um, one of the last great you know native trout cold water species in this, in this country. I mean, you got the Yellowstone cutthroat that, um, what's going on up in Yellowstone is that's pretty remarkable. I mean, at, on Yellowstone Lake, those native fish up there are, uh, they're some of my favorite places to, to be in the whole world. So, uh, down here in Jackson, the snake river fine spotted cutthroat is, um, it's, it's very, the, I think the drainage is very healthy. And I think it might be even on an incline, like it, the health in the water, um, you know, the water regime regulation has been better since the early 2000s. Uh, despite we are, we are in a drought right now and uh, the, the, the lake, the Jackson Lake area is, is very low, but fingers crossed the big snowpack continues and we'll be able to fill that lake back up. But the, the health, there's a very healthy population of native fish in this area as well. Do you find that your clientele is generally pretty excited about catching native species or do they gravitate more toward the like browns and rainbows um, when they come to fish with you? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think most of them, once you uh, allude them to the story and kind of give them a background, they do appreciate it. And they're like, oh, I didn't know. You know, a lot of people you'll say, oh, these are native fish. And they, they're like, they just kind of think, well, okay, they're wild. They live like, here, no, yeah. There's a, 
Yeah, there's a difference between wild and native. They are wild, but they're also native. So when you take the time to to share that story and, and kind of explain it to people, I think it does speak to them. And, you know, it, it's it's real important. Um, that's that's a big part of like coming this area and our our uh, obligation uh, as being a concessionaire in, in the Grand Teton National Park is to share that story and to be, you know, create that awareness and that appreciation and a connection, a connection to the resource. Yeah. I think, um, I tend to gravitate toward our native cutthroats too. Um, even though I wouldn't say that they're necessarily the most fun to catch if you're just talking about like the, the take and the fight, like, I mean, people love brown trout for a reason. Um, but there's just something, um, almost like magical or mystical about them um, they live in such beautiful places, especially compared to, you know, our, like our rainbows. I can drive 10 minutes from home and catch a rainbow. Um, and it just doesn't have the same allure as, you know, getting up in the mountains and, and chasing the natives. Yeah. And you have the greenbacks, right? We do, but there aren't many places that the, the pure greenbacks exist because um, they it's a long story and I'm not even um, super well versed in it, but they thought they had greenback genetics and then they found out that that wasn't the case. So oh. they have since found pure genetics and they are restocking them, but there's a handful of places, maybe under 10 that have the, the pure strain, but we've got a lot of, we've got Colorado river cutthroats and um, lots of kind of hybrid. I don't know if anyone really knows what they are, uh, especially sure. an angler when who's just looking at them. But um, yeah, we've got, we've got a handful Rio grands too. Yeah. Just south of Jackson is the Colorado cutthroat and the native, you know, up in the upper green uh, system is, uh, I'm pretty sure those fish were native there, but they've, they've since went away, but have been reintroduced and small, you know, every once in a while you'll catch a, a cutty down there. And I'll be like, I think this is Colorado. There's also Bonnevilles uh, or Bear River cutthroats. So you're right. There's kind of a, a mutt, you know, cutthroats yep. will begin to mix and, you know, they're still a wonderful fish. Uh, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's been, uh, come to my, brought to my attention that some people really think that the cutthroat is not worthy. Even some of my clients, maybe, and I probably shouldn't go too far down this road. Cause that could be, that could be troublesome, but sure. <laughs> it is, dis- it's disappointing when people will say, disparaging things about the cutthroat and i'm like well wait a minute wait a minute you know tell me where have you fished well tell me what kind of fish you caught and, it, and it's typically a stock fish and i'm like okay that makes sense our fish are pretty darn feisty i mean they fight really well uh they're they they're similar to brown but what i i tell people is how they 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 will tend to look towards the surface more than any fish in the region uh 10 months out of the year. I mean, right now between, uh, pretty much December, January, and well, not even February, but for most of the months of the year, you can catch fish here on dry flies, uh, outside of the, the runoff or maybe the coldest days in January. But, uh, so they certainly look at the surface. I think that's just uh, from how they evolved, uh, these drainages went from super high flows in the spring. This is before dams were created. You know, just think back a couple hundred years ago um, when the native, the native Americans were here, there was, you know, huge, huge flows in the spring. 
the cutthroats had to endure that. And then as the summer progressed, all these watersheds were in a, in a drought period where, or dry, dry seasons were very, very slow. And so the fish, there were, you know, less insects. There were probably a lot more terrestrials. These fish eat a lot of hoppers and, um, and, and the, on the Snake River, actually, there's tons of stoneflies. So most of the biomass that they're looking at uh, is often midges or stoneflies. So they're looking at the surface a lot um, and terrestrials, beetles. I mean, uh, you know, give me an ant or beetle any day around here and that'll catch a, any all the fish. You don't need a you don't need a massive hatch. And and on top of that, our fish really respond to tractors. So. Uh, the foam flies sometimes, you know, you're from Colorado, you think a size 16 is big, uh, around here we fish lots, fours, sixes and eights, maybe not fours, but I know guides who like that. And it's just really fascinating. So when people, when they learn, Oh, all right, we're going to fish size eight dry flies today, not a, not an 18, you know, that, that changes their, their attitude a little bit. To be fair. Um, I do like I I know exactly what you're referring to when you talk about Colorado viewing 16 as big because I feel like a lot of the popular tailwaters you know you do hear about those size size 20 such and such um, I find that when you get up into the high country especially chasing uh, cutthroats and often like brook trout in small streams um, that's not the case I feel like there's almost like two different uh, versions of of what people fish out here and it's the mm-hmm. It's the tailwater, you're fishing midges for big uh, browns and rainbows, and then the high alpine brook and cutthroat water, uh, where you're throwing, you know, maybe a size 12 hopper um, and having mm-hmm. these little tiny fish come up and nail them on the surface. And that's that's kind of like where I, my bread and butter, I would say. Um, but I wanted to ask, uh, are your cutthroats, like when you're fishing for them, are they down in the larger rivers or are you generally going to the high alpine, smaller streams and alpine lakes? More, we're, this area here is really known for drift boat fishing. So we're float fishing the big, the main stem of the snake. I mean, in Jackson, uh, the Snake River is considered the headwaters, but it's still a fairly large river. I mean, we're running uh, at peak summer flows, typically about 3,000 CFS out of the dam. Uh, it, it is, it, the, the river tends to be, it's kind of a freestone. Um, in reality, it is a, a tailwater, uh, for the first like four or five miles. It has a tailwater influence because it is below a dam, but it's not like a deep, um, the, the, where they draw the water, it's only 40 feet deep. So it's not like it's uh, 200 feet and you get this really, really cold water resource coming through. Um, the main influence is the tributaries that come in just a few miles downstream. So that gives it more of a freestone uh, character, I, I would say. But yeah, we're catching cutthroats on the main stem. I mean, that's where we're mo- primarily floating. You can walk the tribs. You can't float the tribs, but you can walk them and they're, they're fantastic. And the fish tend to migrate up and down, just depending on the time of the year. So there is movement. And what all species do you have in that main stem? Uh, the Snake River fine spot. There's uh, also a pretty good population of brown trout. Uh, there's mountain whitefish. That's also a native fish. Um, and that's a whole other subject. Boy, the whitefish, I, I think they're a great little fish. Um, oh, I do too. I love them. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's good practice. <laughs> Get your timing. And they down. fight real hard. Yeah, they're they're not a bad fish. So, um, but yeah, mostly cutties, whitefish, and brownies. And lake, there's lake trout in the river too. They they come out of the they come out of the lake. So, and they I don't. My personal feeling is the lake trout and the snake don't thrive that well. I don't think the Lakers are um, are really designed to be in a river system, especially a, a faster flowing river. They do okay. You'll catch a, a few up in the slow water in the deep holes, but um, the fishing game don't tend to feel like they're a major threat. I think when they can, they would prefer, or when people catch them, they probably prefer they remove them, but it's not like a significant threat like it was in Yellowstone a few years back. That was a different situation. So what did they end up doing about that? Cause I remember hearing about it. Um, was there any sort of actual effort to, to remove them or was it more of an angler, you know, request to keep them? Yeah. How that all kind of transpired. And, and so far, I mean, yes, they started uh, gill netting. I want to, I mean, it was, had to be 2013 ish or so. Um, everybody was going crazy and it was like, yeah. And you go up there, it was very evident. It was, you, you would catch or maybe not even see fish. So, um, I, I think I quit guiding up there cause I love Yellowstone Lake. I, I stopped for about four or five years. Um, uh, it just wasn't worth it anymore. Um, and then, you know, you hear the progress, you kept getting, you know, the updates on the progress from the gill netting and they were ver- being very successful. And then you would hear about uh, through the film tour or something, some people were up in the thoroughfare region watching the fish uh, begin to spawn again. And, and all, you know, and, and it's just like clockwork. The numbers really shot up uh, and, and it's been a wonderful thing. I mean, I, I've been guiding on Yellowstone Lake again since, uh, oh, probably 2018 with really good success and it's just a wonderful fishery but those fish you know i know we've talked in and out of about how their character um that's a good fighting fish i wouldn't say it's the 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 absolute best but what they are is um incredible eaters on the surface and in the water column Uh, visually the way they eat is exciting uh and they'll get up shallow for several a couple months of the summer and the sight fishing and they're they're large let's be honest i mean who doesn't like a two-foot fish yeah i mean these fish get big um and it's really exciting i mean it's uh, you know the fight is most i kind of say it sometimes this may be uh hopefully not off color i don't think so but it's like people you know some fish are very athletic and others are just kind of ho-hum and roll (laughs) on in um so hopefully you get that athletic (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had a chance to fish up there? I haven't. No, I'm trying to think of the closest I've been. I've fished Montana, um, but I haven't fished like the Jackson re- the Jackson area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've done like the I've done the Gallatin, I've done the Blackfoot. Um, what else have I done up there? Oh, the um, the Madison. I've done the Madison, um, mm-hmm. but that's the extent really of my fishing up north. Yeah, well, it's it's a great region, and I haven't done a ton down in your neck of the woods, so we'll have to trade up sometime. I I hear great stories of like the Arkansas or the, you know, certain reaches and those Southern Colorado drainages or the Rio Grande maybe mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that are just, they sound really interesting. So 
we have a lot of a lot of watersheds, which is nice. Like a lot of kind of main stem rivers coming out. Um, I tend to focus my time a little more up in the mountains themselves, just because I I like that style of fishing. I like alpine lakes. I like I like not seeing people, and so that's the way to do sure. it. Um, yep. But yeah, we do have like no shortage of kind of like larger rivers too that are are really nice. Um, and if you get out of the the main handful that are within a couple of hours of Denver, um, I think they're still not terribly crowded. I think Colorado has a reputation of being super crowded and parts of it are, but it's not, it's not terribly hard to, to find some space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't know there, the, the, the boat fishing is, I mean, that's the big thing here. I don't know. You're a lot of your drainage is maybe short, steep or smaller, um, not big enough to float, but I know you have plenty of float rivers there. Um, but here it's like, I mean, that's the main way to get on some of these streams, uh, the big rivers, at least. I mean, we're floating 10 to 15,000 CFS at times on the South Fork of the Snake or some of those bigger rivers in, in eastern Idaho. And uh, I mean, a boat is an, an incredible tool to, um, you know, not only you, you're sharing that that uh, that fishing experience with whether it's your clients or your friends or family. It's almost, it's a social, you know, you just don't get in a drift boat by yourself and go fish. Some people do, but and generally there's spots for three people and you want to fill that. It's a social, it's really social. And what you said a moment ago about, about being away from people, that's huge. You know, uh, for me, I don't think fish really like people. So getting away from people and going to the, the, the rivers or drainages that are less pressured is, I mean, I'll, I'll seek that out. I'll go an hour out of my way to find that personally, but you can't do that every day. So fortunately the heavily fished rivers still provide, uh, I mean, they're, they're fantastic. You just have to approach all every place with its own, you know, uh, you know, set of characteristics and just embrace it. So it's, it's, if it's a crowded day, you have to like, all right, I know what we're in for. Let's just kick back. We're going to throw dry flies. We're going to fish behind each other or maybe fish the opposite bank. Just kind of avoid, you know, go see what you can learn and, you know, uh, try new techniques. It's, it's fishing. It's, we're just lucky to be out there is the way I always look at it. Oh, absolutely. And I will say there's something too, um, this, the skills you get from fishing heavily pressured water too. I mean, I love going out and not seeing a single soul, but usually I'm not challenged that much when I do that. You know, if I'm going and fishing yeah. fish that haven't seen yeah. a fly in the last month, you know, it's not terribly hard to get them to take pretty much anything I throw in the water. And so, you know, you learn something every time you go out, but um, I often don't learn much on those days. It's just yeah. pure fun. And so to go out on some of the more pressured water, um, it might be tougher to get a fish, but when you do, I feel like there's a kind of a, you know, there's, there's lessons learned in that. Um, and there's work, work you have to put in. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, hundred percent accurate there. I mean, and, and the, uh, there it's humbling. I mean, that's the, let's just be honest. I mean, this, this, this time and, you know, 21st century fishing can be very humbling. And a lot of people, it's funny, they'll hire a guide and they're like, you know, I've had people say, I've been fishing here for a week and haven't caught a fish. And then, you know, we get in the boat and they're, they're just doubling up or something. I'm like, well, it's not me. It's just, you know, you were putting your fly probably, you just need to be fine tuned. You weren't yeah. putting it in the right spot. You guys are doing great. So yeah, it is. It's fun. Uh, I like tough rivers. I mean, I like a fish that I, I feel like I can't, it's going to be difficult to catch. 
but I also really enjoy getting away from people. Um, yeah, I like lower sections of rivers, um, the lower drainages or the lower sections of a drainage is often there's lower fish counts, but there's the potential for a trophy is there. So that's kind of fun. I think it's fun to kind of vary what you do too. I mean, I, everyone's got their preferred thing that they do, you know, for me, it's high Alpine stuff for, for you, you know, you've got drift boats and stuff that I don't really have as much access to here. Um, but it's, I feel like it's not only fun, but also just good for good for your learning and your experience to really branch out and try all kinds of different situations like put yourself in different situations try to catch different species in different types of water um it it keeps it fun and exciting like you know not repeating the same thing over and over again yeah i think that's one thing about fly fishing that it's it's always taught me and that i know i'll try never take it for granted but it's there there's no day that's ever the same it, it, I could fish the, these rivers, I mean, and I have every day or whatever, month of July, but no day is ever the same. It's There's always some um, factor that's out of whack or, you know, something you have to adapt to. And I love that, whether it's the water flow, the water temperature, the bugs aren't happening or or there's too many bugs or whatever it might be. It's never the same. And you have to always be thinking. It's a very um cerebral kind of i mean it, it you know let's just you know fly fishing to me is very cerebral uh and not just an activity it's you know it's very cleansing and you know therapeutic this has come up many times um on this show just the the focus that it takes uh, especially in a place where the fish are, are yeah. a little bit tougher to catch is like you can't be thinking about whatever you've got going on at home or the stress, like stress from work or anything like that. Like you have to be a hundred percent there. It's not going to work, which is, that's that's why people, it is, that's why people love it. Uh, And when they, you know, as a guide, I appreciate that because you were, I may not be the best of them, but you're kind of a psychologist. You really can help people uh, get lost and, and kind of forget some of their, their challenges at home or wherever. And, it's that's a it's a wonderful thing i mean to be able to just yeah time flies by when i'm on the river like it's oh my god it's already three o'clock we got to start moving along here we're 10 miles behind or whatever it might be and uh yeah it's it's amazing how time flies and everything is all your concerns are kind of erased you're focused on that fly or reading the water that's my one of my favorite things is just reading water when did when do you think can you put your finger on um when reading water kind of clicked for you because that's something i notice a lot um in newer anglers and i'm sure you have experienced this working with um beginners that yeah. you know it's it's hard sometimes to describe reading water like you can you can point at a pool and say that one's good because it's you know behind a rock and you know there's a, a slower eddy with some moving water by like you can kind of describe it but at the end of the day there's something that kind of um i think just clicks when you've done it enough times where you can look at water and you can kind of visualize where a fish would sit and it's not as easy as just logistically describing all the features um do yeah. you like do you remember when that kind of clicked for you or do you see that click in in newer anglers when they're when they're learning to read water no i know i know what you mean and it's i think it comes with spending a lot of time or being very intimate with a river knowing it's uh all its characters and things change throughout the seasons um, because you know, everyone or not everyone, but a lot of people have read the, what is it? The Curtis Creek manifesto. 
you know, it says put your fly right behind the rock or, and those are all true. I mean, fish do like sitting behind rocks, but they also like sitting in front of the rocks or, yeah. uh, and that slack water off, you know, on the, you know, everyone wants to fish the heavy bank and, uh, we call them boogie banks. I, I can't stand fast water. Like, but that depends on where you are and maybe the time of year and the water temperature. If the water around our parts, if the water is uh, warm, like in August, we get pretty warm water. Um, I'll fish in that heavy, <clears throat> really heavy seam. Um, but in, in March, April, you you look for the slowest water you can find. I think rainbows, and I think a lot of fish react a similar way, but every river has its own characteristic. And as far as reading it, when did it click for me? Uh, I think it's just a, a time, quick time is like, wait a minute, I I caught it. It's like it, the best anglers are have photographic memory. You you remember I caught a fish right there in 1995, and it's it's eight years later, and by God, there's still a fish in, that, <laughs> in a similar log, or it, and you you just remember you remember where you catch them, you remember what the water looked like, you remember all the 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 you know the environmental factors that might affect it. And, and, and all of a sudden it just starts painting a picture. And I think you, you get a second sense for it, reading water and you're often wrong. Obviously, you know, you're not catching fish every cast or every, you know, every good spot, but you're reading the water. If, if there's one thing I can teach people on a, in a guide trip, uh, that's, you know, you got to be able to deliver the fly. So the cast obviously is a big deal, but like, all right, read the water as I'm reading it, because by the time I point it out to you, it may be too late because we're, you know, talking about being in a drift boat as the boat's moving. Um, you know, a lot of people tend to fish parallel from a drift boat and, you know, often you need to be out in front of the boat. So if they're not seeing that water where I want that fly placement uh, in time, it, it's often too late because I can't macro hard enough to to slow the boat down and give them another shot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One nice thing about reading water that I think like it is one of the most important aspects, obviously, but it translates from other styles of fishing too. Like there's a lot of things, you know, people are they're new to fly fishing, but if have fished with a spin rod or a bait cast or anything like that before, there's a lot of things to learn new. And one thing you don't 
necessarily is reading water. If you fish for trout before or whatever species you're targeting, um, that's universal. Mm -hmm. Like just knowing where fish are and what they might be doing if they're sitting there. Um, I think that's often overlooked when someone's getting started is like, you might already have like more than 50% of what you need to go out and catch a fish. You just now need to be able to pick a fly and know how to get it to the right spot. But you're not starting from scratch. And honestly, that's probably the most important part is, is understanding where a fish is going to be and why, and like, what is it going to do when it's sitting there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the best guides, that's what you, um, you learn to teach that like, all right, let's, uh, what are all the factors right now? Water temperature, what's the flows been? I mean, I'm on the internet most mornings before a, a guide trip checking flows just to, it's kind of like, a, it's, a, I wish it was a stock market. I get paid a lot more, but it's not the <laughs> stock market, but you're, you're looking at river flows and it's like, all right, yeah, that may be off. I want to, all right, no, let's not go there. Okay. All right. I think we'll do this. This is looking good. And it's coming down or, or, you know, just depends. And that goes back to what we were talking about, or there's so many variables and it's, there's, it's never the same. That's why we love it. It's, you don't, you just never know. That's why it's, I mean, hate to say it. It's why it's called fishing. (laughs) Someone had to say it. Someone had to say it. I bet that comes out every uh, podcast you do. Not every podcast. I'm sure it's come out before, but it's true though. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like, it's, it's funny and people always laugh about it when they say it, but it's true. I mean, um, and if you're going out there for the catching, then you're not going to last very long. No, no. Yeah. It's, it's humbling. And, and yeah, reading the water fly, you know, for, you know, just picking a reasonable fly. I often tell my guests, uh, look, I'll take a mediocre fly almost any day, as long as it's presented well. Uh, over the best fly presented poorly and and it's true like a, a good a reasonable fly choice right size or color whatever it might be the silhouette if you present it well it's going to work if you take the best fly in your box or you know <laughs> and you just slap it down with a ton of slack or you know you uh, high impact on the water it's just not going to work so and once you start to it's guiding it or what you were talking about it's just fine tuning what people are doing you know uh, what they're doing right and and kind of like all right well let's not do that these are the wrong things you want to you know let's let's make these corrections but you're you're on the right track let's just fine tune it all is the way i look at it you mentioned uh in when i sent you that doc beforehand that you view mm-hmm. fly fishing as Kind of a science plus a an art or craft plus a hunt. Uh, tell me more about your approach to that and how you view it as uh, these three different things simultaneously. Yeah, well, I mean, I think of a craft. I guess I guess some of that comes from fly tying, and I mean, I'm not the best fly tire in the world, but I can tie a, a really nice bug and it's a good streamer. Um, I'm okay on nymphs, but I don't fish a ton of nymphs. But I think the it being a fly tire. Um, that that's certainly a craft and i think the art of casting is a is can fall under that category um but hunting you know that primal urge to hunt fly fishing is uh, essentially my favorite way to fish is with sight fishing um i think it's the pinnacle of of fly fishing in my opinion um is being able to see a fish and it doesn't matter what species it can be a rough fish or the top game fish 
but seeing a fish in shallow water and stalking it and making a fly, you know, uh, presenting a fly that hopefully you tied yourself to imitate um, the local, you know, food or, or prey of choice. Uh, that that's the pinnacle of it. It's like tying a fly, stalking a fish in shallow water. Um, it doesn't even have to be in shallow water, but sight fishing. Anytime I get a chance to sight fish, I'm I'm in my element. That is my f absolute favorite thing to do. Freshwater, saltwater, big fish, little fish, <laughs> uh, any species. So um, that's the the craft or that that hunt, that relationship you're talking about. Now, is that just because you enjoy the satisfaction of, you know, seeing a fish and going through every step necessary to get it to take your fly? Is it is it that satisfaction or what is it about seeing that fish and targeting a specific one that, that really gets you going? I think it's the interaction when the fly, like, all right, I got the fly in front of the fish. It didn't spook. All right, let's watch its interaction. I mean, you can see uh, whether it's a bonefish or a, a big trout, like you can see their fins. You you seeing that fish react and, uh, well, like today, I mean, I was ice fishing today, but on sonar, um, I'm interacting with that fish. It's kind of like a cat and mouse. I can see it, at, you know, whatever depth I'm fishing and I can see my jig and I'm watching that fish, how it interacts with my presentation and often you can talk them into it um sight fishing with a fly rod uh is a lot better than ice fishing <laughs> but um but it's similar uh it's it you know i see that fish you make the you get the fly in front of it and and all right i'm gonna strip i'm gonna stop i'm gonna wiggle it twitch it whatever it might be uh and that's I think that's pretty cool. Uh, you're you're truly interacting with nature um, and without I mean, I guess, you know, this is a whole nother subject you could talk about sometime. But uh, are you hurting fish when you hook them? Perhaps there's a little trauma there, but it's um, it. I think the the reward as the t apex predator um, pursuing that fish and, and you're, you're get, getting out in nature. I think it far outweighs any, um, and you know, it creates stewardship, all those things, uh, it far outweighs any, any, uh, impact we might be having on the fish or the resource. So. Yeah. That was another thing I saw that you had, um, brought up was the sustainability, like kind of wanting to build a more sustainable, like fishing future. Um, and this kind of ties into it just because I, I feel like there's been a push in the past couple of years, at least for um, if you are catch and release fishing, you know, treating that fish well enough that it is actually going to survive. Because I have no problem with keeping yeah. fish, but I don't want to release a fish and have it die. I either want to keep it and eat it or I want to release it and let it live another day. Um, and there's been a, a big push, I think, to, you know, getting people toward handling fish properly and, um, you know, using the right kind of net and uh, not taking the fish out of the water longer than it needs to. Um, what, what kind of, yeah. you know, view do you have? Uh, for kind of like a sustainable future fishery so people can continue to do it? Well, in my opinion, the, the most important thing, any angler, if they're, you know, in this, in, let's just, you know, the 21st century, call it, call it what it is, um, high pressured, you know, post COVID, there was a lot of people got outdoors during that. And that's wonderful. I think it's great. People were rediscovering getting outdoors. And I think that's, should continue um but 
un, you know, without a doubt, the most important thing anglers can do is fish a barbless hook. That that takes away time that you're going to struggle with that fish. You know, let's just say you land it quickly. You're right, a, cat, a proper catch and release net. Keep the fish below the water line. I mean, I'm I'm a, a huge believer in all those things, uh, whether it's my day off or with uh, clients, you know, guests. I I always try and teach that. It's like, all right, this is how we're going to do this. You know, let's land that fish fairly quickly. You know, get it in the net and and keep it below the water line. It's like, all right, do you guys need a photo? Like, all right, we've caught a couple. Maybe we just let this one go. And, or if it's a larger fish, it's like, all right, I know you want a photo. Let me help you. All right, the hook's out. Pick up your line. Put that away. Are you ready? Have your camera ready. Don't be holding the fish four feet off the ground and the camera's not even ready. It's all those little things that drive. You see it as a guide and it drives you nuts. So over time, it's like, all right, I've seen it enough. We're not doing it anymore. I'm in control. <laughs> and all right, this is how we release a fish. If you need a proper photo, let's let's do it right and let me help you. And and those people are really appreciative because they're like, wow, that's a great picture. And I'm like, yeah, there you go. And the fish was out of the water less than 10 seconds. Yeah. So that's the way I like to do it. Now, it doesn't always go that smoothly, but it it, it tends to. Yeah. I mean, once you get good at it, it's... But I think the single barbless hook... Um, and and another thing, like we're talking about sustainability, the the droppers. I mean, I I, I fish droppers. I I fish double fly rigs, uh, probably forty to sixty percent of the time. Not not a ton, but not, I'm not gonna lie and say I don't ever do that. But um, some some people or some areas are getting a little crazy with like three or four flies on a on a leader, and I think that's a little over the top. Uh, and I mean, I don't, maybe I could be, I've, I've never debated anybody about it, but, and I'm sure they could convince me. And if I lived in that area where it was prudent, maybe I'd be doing it too. But the, my point is, is if you can't catch them on two flies presented well, or preferably one, then what, what's four going to do? I think it affects the, the presentation. Um, but I, I understand guys are fishing different water column, you know, uh, but we, you know, we're lucky. I don't have to do that too much around this part. I can fish a, I can tie on some days, a, a, a either an attractor, like an ant or beetle, um, like a terrestrial attractor or, or, a, a, a suggestive mayfly on a, any day, uh, and probably fish it all day. I mean, we, we, we're pretty lucky, um. Now, I know there's probably going to be some people listening to this and calling BS, but uh, it's true, though. If you, if you, you know, believe in your fly, uh, fish it well, you know, it'll work. It's like what we were talking about a while ago. It's not the fly. It just present it better and, and read the water better, like meticulously read the water. Um, but uh, sustainability, I think the single barbless hook and better catch and release is going to go a long ways. And just being, um, I think, mindful of, all right, this is a crowded river. Let's give people space. Let's not drift by them and you have your oars banging each other or something. People need to give each other space, respect their, you know, respect, respect their boundaries. And, and 
you know, if it's a super crowded day, maybe go somewhere else. If you can, if you have that luxury of changing your plans. Um, what else? I mean, I think in the, maybe in the future, it could be where we don't anchor much, you know, anchoring can really disturb, um, your, uh, invertebrate life. Uh, it, it can do some damage for sure. So there might be less anchoring on so, like I'm I'm kind of speaking about our area here since we work in the park uh, in a national park where the resource protection is kind of high on our priority I mean that is the number one number one thing so we're always thinking about how can we do what we do better and uh, so less anchoring uh, we don't walk above the high water mark but we also uh, are very cautious if we're walking in the water. So there's, and you know, we stay in the boats a lot. So it's safe. It's a safe environment in the boat um, for our guests. So, but yeah, the sustainability, I'm always thinking about ways like, cause it's going to, it's going to come or happen sooner than we think. Um, it, it could be just a couple of years where things kind of get crazy in some areas. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm sure you guys have warm water. Oh yeah. Uh, by the end of July, it, we had water near 70 degrees up here and I've never seen that. I've lived here almost 25 years and I've never seen uh, water like 71 degrees on the snake river, late July, early August. So Closures are going to happen. I know in Montana, the hoot owl uh, or hoot, hoot hours are mm -hmm. very popular. Do you do that in Colorado? I don't think we have hoot owl hours, but we have voluntary fishing closures. So they'll put up signs yeah. along the riverbank that says, they say like, this water's warm. It's not illegal to fish it, but we highly recommend you don't. And I mean, to be honest, sure. if I saw someone fishing that, I'd be like, that person's an asshole, <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to go fish yeah. that in front of, in front of these signs. And um, I generally don't see people uh Dis, uh, disregard them so they they do seem to keep people off the water when they put those signs up but it's a bummer when uh there's that many uh waterways that are basically closed at the same time you know it happens at the same time of year for all of them and it's kind of a bummer when there's that many that are that are closing down but um you know I, I don't know if maybe there's a way to move toward voluntary fishing closure after 10 a.m or something you know give people a couple hours to get out try to catch some fish if they can after the the colder night temperatures um but yeah we do we do have the fishing closures quite a bit in the summer and they encourage people to get up into the high country like go up and fish the alpine lakes they're deep they're at yeah. ten thousand feet like you can still go have a great time and not be on this particular river yeah it just goes back to adapting i'm always like like all right we got to adapt every whether it's you know, spring, summer, winter, fall, um, you're, you're adapting to the conditions and, and that's just one of those adjustments, uh, mid July or late July, early August, um, is the, the big window for us. It's about three, maybe four weeks where it's pretty hot and it's, there's no reason to really be out there after one o'clock. Now, the, honestly, you're probably not really catching that much anyhow. So you're not hurting the fish because they're, they just tend to, to, to hang low i mean the bite was at 6 a.m you missed it right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the good news i don't get too hard on people if they're fishing afterwards but i'm like hey you know just so you, you know you know that awareness you just got to be and that that goes a long ways if you're just kind of nice hey you know it's a little late you know what do you think um there's not a ton of data i mean i think 
uh, not at least really firm scientific data on what happens. Um, I've had I've had fish be quite cooperative in the the mid to upper sixty degree range, but after that, I don't really know because I just feel too guilty and I'm not fishing it. Above sixty eight is kind of our um, that's kind of our our benchmark or cutoff line. Like we don't tend to fish above sixty eight uh, as an outfitter. But, you know, I've had great days where the water is mid-60s, and the fish are, they swim away just fine. And and I've talked to other guys or locals, and they're like, these fish are fine. I mean, you know, they get used to it. And I'm like, I don't know, really, maybe. I think if you if you fight a fish to exhaustion, 70-degree uh, water could easily be lethal. Um, but they are more resilient. I mean, they're not a catfish, but the trout are pretty resilient if you do the proper catch and release like we were talking about. Um, you'll see that fish swim away um, vigorously if you do all those things and the water could be in the uh, upper 60s. Um, I don't know if I recommend it, but it's I've seen it. I've witnessed uh, a fish be you know, swim away very, very rigorously. So it's probably comes down to dissolved oxygen and how healthy the fish is. Has it had, you know, um, is it being nourished well from the, you know, from food and is the, there enough dissolved oxygen? So I don't know all that scientific data. I do have an interest in, in freshwater biology, but I don't think there is a ton of research on what happens after angling pressure for trout in the in the upper reaches of the of the water. I mean, there's speculation. I think for me, it's it's just like, hey, we think it's going to hurt the fish, so why do it? Let's just stop. Yeah, I mean, um, be proactive it, about it. Yeah, be proactive. Exactly. You mentioned the the three fly rig, and we are we've got about five minutes left before we're uh, at time. Uh, the the three fly rig you brought up. Um, I think a yeah. way that people can kind of uh, balance that, because I understand the desire to have more flies on, is kind of the more flies, more fish mentality. Um, yeah. I like to yeah. use, because we can use three in Colorado, I like using three to figure out if there's something in particular they're eating. And if you figure uh -huh. that out, take it off and now take the other ones off. And now you've got the fly that's working and you're not worrying about getting tangled every other cast in the wind. Like you can use it kind of as a search technique, narrow it down and then drop down to one to two flies um, pretty easily. And it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds at that point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I, when I talk about things, I'm never, I'm, I'm like, I don't have the, the, the truth on anything. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm always listening and on all ears on uh, like, you know, if you have a position on something, I agree. I mean, I just I think in guiding when I've come in that situation where I've considered it, it's just uh, the the tang entanglements yeah. are real. <laughs> uh, like, all right, we're going to spend more time untangling than we are in the strike zone. So let's let's just focus on the strike zone. And, and not be untangling it, it that, that that's all it is you know a lot of guiding is just weighing out like uh your course of action here if we do this this is going to happen if we do that that's gonna you, you know if you have less flies in the water we're gonna have left less opportunity but if the flies are constantly tangled you're not in the water anyway so i think you you know you it it's it's a whole funny thing so 
Right. At the end of the day, uh, I'd much rather be taking casts to fish and not catching anything than uh, untangling a knot. You know, I, I can have fun casting all day long. Um, so if I can keep my line in a, in a working manner and just cast that single fly, even if it's not going super well, I'm going to choose to do that yeah. over untangling birds nests all day. And I think most people would, would be on the same page. Yeah. I, one cast I try and teach people from a drift boat, it's the reach cast and it's baffling how I mean, I've fished with people for years and they still are, are executing a reach cast will, you know, increase your, your with a dry fly, especially your, your catch, your catch rate or your, um, at least your opportunity to catch more probably tenfold. I mean, it's unbelievable. So mm -hmm. just having to avoid that mend. Yeah. Yeah. Having to avoid the mend is, is a great thing. Well, uh, I, I don't, I'd love to keep talking with you cause I feel like we're just going on and on, but, um, because of our tech issues, we're getting cut off in about three minutes. So I want to give you a chance to uh, let people know, you know, if they come up and visit that area, how can they find you? Um, I know you, you own a, a fly lodge, so, or I don't know if it's a lodge or just a guide service, but um, tell people about that and where they could find you. We're primarily a guide service. Okay. I mean, we have, we have a small fly shop, but uh, we have about 17 guides in the summer and I still guide myself. I still love it. I mean, that's my wheelhouse. Uh, being in the office is not my uh, my, my biggest strength, I'll be honest. So, uh, but we have a fly shop, uh, large, you know, medium, large guide service, a lot of great guides, a lot of veteran guides. Most of us have been doing it in this region for 20 plus years. So, um, that's, there's a lot of time among all our guides, uh, like, you know, among the staff, like it's incredible. So, uh, and that shows on the water. Um, not not so much in your catch, but the experience, the overall experience is what I really get into. And like we were talking about earlier, um, just that having people make a connection with the resources, what I shoot for fish, fish are a bonus. They're going to happen, but um, and some days they don't. But uh, but yeah, the incredible resources up here. Um, we're Grand Teton fly fishing. We've got a great web website people can go to. We're on Instagram and I do a little bit of Facebook. I'm not a huge fan, but it is what it is. Um, but I love Instagram. I, I really enjoy photography. So I try and, uh, create good image content with a nice message is kind of my philosophy. So that's how they can find us. Well, I hope you get a uh, good rest of your winter coming up with the, you know, you've been doing some ice fishing. So, um, hope that keeps going well with you. I hope you have a good summer with lots of water. I know we're all wished for that out West and it seems like yeah. so far a good snowpack for us. So, um, I wish the same for you. And, uh, once again, thank you for, for bearing with me with the tech issues today. Um, I've had a really good time talking with you, even though we've had to cut it off like five or six times at this point. And so I just can't thank you enough. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome. It was really nice to meet you, Katie, and uh, no problem on the tech issues. That stuff happens. So look forward to uh, maybe another time. So Absolutely. Thanks, thanks again. All right. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. 
Uh, But otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody.